We don't have to be shaken. We can stand firm. Not because we're so great or because we're so strong, but because Jesus is our firm foundation. We don't have to be shaken when the world around us is just filled with chaos and madness. Hey, we can be uh, calm, cool, and collected because Jesus is our foundation. And uh, thanks so much for being here today. You can find a seat this morning. And if you have a Bible today, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Peter. And over the last several weeks and months, our church has been in a study that we've been calling Stand Firm. And uh, we are studying this letter uh, written by the Apostle Peter uh, to churches that were scattered throughout Asia Minor. And they were scattered because they were suffering. They were going through a difficult season in the first century, persecution. And so Peter writes this letter to encourage the church how to stand firm. And we're coming to the end of the letter. And in fact, we only have two more weeks of this series, uh, Stand Firm. And uh, on December 6th, we're going to kick off our Christmas season and uh, starting a brand new series of messages on December 6th. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, December 6th is going to be a great day because because we're kicking off uh, our Christmas season with some Christmas decorations. And uh, how many of you already have some Christmas decorations up? All right. How many of you are like, not until after Thanksgiving, please? Okay. Rakia loves to decorate for Christmas early. And uh, looking forward to the Christmas season kicking off on December 6th. And we also are having our children's uh, choir on December 6th. That's going to be awesome. Looking forward to that. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 today. As we come to the closing section of this letter. If you're ready to dive into God's word today, would you say amen? amen. The Bible says this, 1 Peter chapter 4. Verse number one. It says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. And he's not saying that if you are going through a hard time and you're suffering, you don't sin any longer. We know that we've been saved from the penalty of sin, but we still battle the presence of sin. But what he's saying is when we're suffering to the glory of God, that that will be an evidence uh, of our salvation and evidence that we've had the forgiveness of sins. Verse number two, that he no longer should live the rest of his time. Everybody say his time. In the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it's strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Verse 5, who shall give an account? By the way, we will all stand before God and give an account. He says, they will give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, to them that are now dead, that they may, uh, might be judged according to the flesh, uh, according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Peter says, it's the end of time. When I originally wrote this message, I wrote that uh, I was going to call this sermon, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I decided to go with something a little bit different. But this was Peter's message. It's the end. The end is here. The end of all things is at hand. But uh, be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all, everybody say above all. Above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity 
shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as the ability, as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I love how Peter is just writing this, and I can just tell he's getting excited. And he says, you know what? God alone, Jesus Christ, deserves the glory. Praise to him forever and ever. Amen. He lets out a little praise break because he's just excited. Amen. This morning, I want to bring a message that I'm calling time is of the essence. Time is of the essence. If you're ready this morning, would you say amen? Let's have a word of prayer together. Dear God, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to come together and to study your word. And God, I pray that for the next few minutes you will fill me with your spirit to give me the words that would be pleasing to you and beneficial for us all today. God, I know that there are people in this room from all different backgrounds and all different walks of life, but God, this morning we are united under the name of Jesus. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here that does not know you as their Savior, that today can be the day of salvation for them. God, we're praying that we would leave this place today with a better understanding of uh, this chapter in 1 Peter uh, chapter 4. And God, I pray that you would speak to us in a mighty way. We love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, how many of you struggle with keeping track of time? Anybody like that struggle with keeping track of time? How many of you are the opposite? You love to be organized and schedule your day and have, have a good track and sense of your time. Uh, my children, uh, they are coming to learn uh, how to measure and calculate their time. Uh, my two oldest children, uh, Liv and Luke, they're starting to understand measurements of time and you know how long things take and how long it's going to take in the car and the days of the week and things like that. Uh, but my youngest daughter, Blakely, she's still trying to figure all this out. And uh, she hears people saying certain times, but she's unsure about uh, which uh, times are longer, and she uh, doesn't have a good sense uh, and measurement of time. And the other day, she was watching a show, and Katie said, hey, Blakely, you can only watch that for 10 more minutes. And Blakely wanted to watch it longer, and she said, no, five more minutes. And so he said, okay, five more minutes. You know, she had no idea that five minutes was less than 10 minutes. She has an, uh, an inaccurate sense of time. I remember when I was in high school, uh, my uh, basketball team, my senior year, made it to the championship game. And uh, we were excited about that, made it to the championship game, came down to the last minute. We were up by two points. We had the ball, and uh, there was 10 seconds left on the clock. And for those of you that uh, don't know much about basketball, we were in a good uh, position to win the game. All we had to do was inbound the ball, get it, maybe get fouled, go to the free throw line, make a couple free throws. We would win the championship game. Well, we inbounded the ball to one of my friends. He grabbed the ball, 10 seconds left on the clock. He took the ball, and he threw it up in the air as high as he possibly could. The ball went out of bounds, went to the other team. And uh, all of us looked at my friend like, what in the world are you doing? Like, why did you just do that? And his eyes got really big, and he looked at us, and he said, I thought there was only one second left on the clock, not 10 seconds left, and uh, gave the ball to the other team. Now, I'm happy to say we still won the championship game, okay? So we, we still came out uh, on top. But he uh, was not aware of how much time was left on the clock. And I think this morning, if we're not careful, we will live our lives with an unawareness of the fleeting nature of time. We, we will live our lives with an unawareness of how much time 
and how precious and valuable the time that we have is. The truth is this morning that time is our most valuable currency. The most valuable currency in life is our time. It's not the dollar. It's not the euro. It's not Bitcoin. Uh, the, the, the greatest sense of time, the greatest currency of time, or the greatest currency that we have in life is our time. Because one second that we lose cannot be bought back. And so we have to understand that the time that God has given us is so valuable and so precious. In fact, uh, one missionary, David Brainerd, he put it this way, Oh, how precious is time and how it pains me to see it slide away while I do so little to any good purpose. He said time is so precious and it seems like it just slides away. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly. Uh, the word circumspectly means very carefully. Uh, be cautious with where you're stepping, with where you're going. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And so Paul told the church at Ephesus, hey, you need to make sure that you're living your lives uh, with wisdom, redeeming the time that God has given, given unto you. Now, uh, we're trying to do better at, at this as a culture. We're starting to realize how much time we waste. You know, there's documentaries coming out on social networks and just how much time and, and uh, how much time we're spending on certain things. And uh, now iPhone, if you have an iPhone, uh, they recently came out with... Um, they recently came out with a feature called the screen time report. How many of you look at that screen time report? Anybody? Some of you are like, I don't want to look at it. I don't want to know the truth. Um, well, the truth will set you free because the truth uh, of, of that uh, tells you how much time you're spending on Instagram and on Twitter and on Facebook. And sometimes you look at that like, holy moly, like I'm spending a lot of time uh, on, on social media. In fact, during quarantine, there's a lot of articles that have been written that uh, people are spending way more time on their phones than even before. And one Twitter user posted a screenshot kind of uh, bragging about his percentage that it went up 185% from the last week, that he is just spending that much time uh, on his phone. Um, according to the official, the official, everybody say official, American Time Use Survey put on by the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, so this was official, right? They did this study, and they said that the top three activities for Americans by far, top three things we do by far, work, sleep, TV, okay? Work, sleep, TV. So we go to work, we sleep, we watch TV. We go to work, we sleep, we watch TV. Those are the things that consume our times, but we have to be very careful because Henry David Thoreau said this, you can't kill time without injuring eternity. So we don't have the luxury of just kind of squandering our time away without it affecting all of eternity. The Bible says in Psalm 90 verse number 12, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. And if we're not careful, we will raise a generation of spiritual infants without an accurate sense and measurement of time and an awareness of how much time we have left. Now, we come to 1 Peter chapter 4, and this is the theme that Peter is hammering home on. He's reminding, of, reminding us of our time. And multiple times in those 11 verses that we just read, Peter references time. He says, the rest of your life and the time that we have and the time past. And he's, he's, he's telling us to, to focus on the time that we have left. In fact, he says in verse number 7 that the end of time is at hand. He's like, it's the end of the world as we know it. Uh, we're living in the end times. Now, he was doing that for two reasons. Peter was reminding the church that, uh, that, that life is short and uh, that uh, in the church age, we're living in the end times where we're expecting and awaiting the return of Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter is getting at, that, hey, Jesus could come back at any moment. We believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ, that he uh, could come back at any moment. And uh, we're about to celebrate Christmas, and uh, we're about to celebrate the arrival and the birth of Jesus Christ. That was his 
his first advent, his first coming, but there are far more prophecies concerning his second coming than even his first. And so we know that as followers of Jesus, that he is coming again. Now, this is something that uh, is scattered all throughout the New Testament. The New Testament writers reminded us constantly that Jesus is coming again. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 that the Lord is near. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, said that the coming of the Lord is near. Uh, John said that uh, we are living uh, in the last hour. Even Jesus said, surely I come quickly. And I just want to remind us this morning as a church that Jesus is coming again. And by the way, what a wonderful and glorious day that will be when Jesus returns with his bride, the church, when Satan is bound, when Jesus establishes his kingdom, and we will reign with him, and we will worship him forever and ever. Is anybody thankful today? for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hey, that's why we don't have to sorrow as those without hope, but our hope is in Jesus Christ, and he is coming again. And so we can live with confidence. We can live with that certainty and that assuredness that Jesus is coming again. And so Peter's reminding us, hey, life is short. Time is of the essence. Now, a lot of times we shy away from uh, talking about the second coming. We, we, we shy away from talking about end times because there have been people that have abused that theology, right? And they've kind of come up with their own weird conclusions. And uh, this goes all the way back even to the second century. There was a, a movement known as Montanism because there was a leader named Montanus uh, who radically abused the teachings of the Holy Spirit. In fact, some historians say that he claimed to be the Holy Spirit. And he was telling people, hey, Jesus is coming back quickly. And so he was telling Christians, sell your home, sell your possessions, sell everything that you have, and let's all move over to this place. And many communities were uprooted and destroyed as a result of wrong and false theology. Maybe a modern-day example of this is Harold Camping. I passed away several years ago. But Harold Camping was a man that uh, constantly was predicting dates for the end of the world and constantly saying, here's the end of the world. I know what it's going to be. And every time, he got it wrong, right? He kept, on, he kept on getting it wrong over and over again. And so we know that people have had kind of some weird and wrong views of end times theology, but that shouldn't cause us to shy away from considering the end. One commentator said it this way, Juan Sanchez, he said, living with the end in view is not a call to radical Christianity. It is a call to normal Christianity. It is a call to live our lives together as a church in a way that displays the character of God to a hostile world. And that remembers that we have placed our hope in a certain glorious future so that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He said, that's a mature Christian viewpoint that we're considering the end. Now, as a church, when we consider the end and we're considering our time, that should spur within us a sense of urgency, a sense of passion, right? Jesus put it this way in John chapter 9, this, this story where Jesus healed the man that was blind and he was talking to his disciples. And he said this in John chapter 9, verse number 4, I must work the works of him that sent me. Jesus said, I have a mission that I have to accomplish. By the way, his mission is our mission. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. Jesus said, I have to work the works of him that sent me while it is day. Hey, there ought to be a sense of urgency among us today that we say, hey, we're not just here playing games. We're not just here going through the motions and messing around. There are people that need to hear about the life-giving and life-changing message of Jesus. And so I'm not going to sit idly by and just kind of see what happens. No, I'm going to go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. And I'm going to live according to the purpose that God has given me. I must work the works of him that sent me while it's day while we still can hey can I tell you today time is of the essence time is of the essence this is what Peter is hammering home now as we consider this subject as we consider this theme that time is of the essence 
I want to give us this morning four ways that we can steward the time that God has given us. Would that be all right this morning? Four ways that we can steward the time that God has given us. Number one today, if you're taking notes, arm your mind. Arm your mind. It starts in the mind. Notice verse number one. He says, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, and he's talking and continuing his thought from chapter three about how Christ suffered for us, the just one for the unjust. If anyone knows about pain and suffering, it's Jesus Christ. If any innocent person ever gone through a difficult season and hardship, it was Jesus Christ. He was wounded uh, for our transgressions, and he was, he, he was uh, by his stripes we are healed. So he knew all about suffering. And, and, and what Peter is saying is that we are partnering with Christ when we suffer. He's our example in suffering, but also we are partnered in Christ in suffering. It's an opportunity to give God glory when we go through a difficult season. We can radiate the beauty and the love and the glory of Jesus Christ uh, the most in a difficult season. And so this is what Peter's saying. Then he goes on in verse number one. He says, so then, uh, verse number one, arm yourselves. Everybody say arm. arm. He says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. He says, what you need to do. In these end times, when time is of the essence, what we need to do is arm our minds. We need to get the mind of Christ within us. He says, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. And I love that word arm because obviously it's a military word. It's a battle word. He's saying just like a soldier would put on his gear and he's going to get ready for battle. That's what we are to do when it comes to our minds. We are to uh, get into battle ready position because the Christian life is not a game to be played. It's a war to be waged. And so he says, arm your mind with the mind of Christ. Philippians 2 says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are to have the mind of Christ instilled within us. Ephesians puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 11. Put on the whole armor of God. We've got to get armored, right? We've got to have some protection that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. By the way, by the way, what's going on in our world today, in our culture, is more than just flesh and blood. What's going on in our world today, in our culture, is spiritual warfare. There is a darkness and a power of darkness that is constantly attacking, and we are battling not against just flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, so now is the call to action, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. He's saying, hey, we can stand firm. We can stand firm, but we've got to get armored up. And it starts in the mind. I remember when I was in elementary school, I woke up one morning and uh, there were police cars all in our front yard. And I had no idea what was going on. And I came downstairs and we found out that our minivan, our family minivan was stolen straight from our garage. And, uh, and uh, the police were there, and it was my mom's minivan, so the police were asking her a lot of questions. My dad was there, and they found out that uh, my mom had left the garage door wide open through the night. Then they also found out that my mom had left the car unlocked all through the night. And then they found out that my mom had left the keys in the ignition with the unlocked car with an, unopened, with an open garage all through the night. And I remember my dad was a little bit frustrated. He looked at my mom and he said, you might as well put a sign on the car that said free car. You know, anybody can just come and uh, take this car. You know, when you have something that's valuable, you want to protect it. 
When there's something of great value, we should protect it. And so many people today are unable to stand firm because the gates to their mind are just left wide open. And so doubt is just walking right in and making itself at home, and anxiety is walking right in, and discouragement is walking right in, and depression is walking right in, and the news media is walking right in, and somebody's battle is in our mind. And if the battle is in our mind, that means our attitudes are our weapons. And so if we determine that we're going to use our, our attitudes as weapons, those attitudes won't then be our weakness. We're not going to be going around complaining and filled with fear, but we're going to have the mind of Christ and the attitude is going to be changed. And we're going to go around saying, you know what? God does have a purpose for my life and God does have a plan for my life. And I can uh, walk by faith and I don't have to walk by fear. See, we need to arm our minds. The battle begins in the mind. Proverbs 23, 7 says, for as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The thoughts that you think will determine the direction of your life. Jerry Bridges said this, God's word must be so strongly fixed in our minds that it becomes the dominant influence of our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions. One of the most effective ways of influencing our minds is through memorizing scripture. Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so I want to encourage you today, time is of the essence, so let's arm our minds. Uh, This leads us to our second thought today, number two, cut ties with the past. Cut ties with the past. Now, this is something that is common to the human experience. People are constantly asking the question. There's thousands of articles. If you search Google, uh, I searched Google this week, there are thousands of articles from just kind of a secular standpoint about how you can move on and get over your past. And so people are constantly wanting to know, you know, how do I move on? Well, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth. Everybody say reaching forth. Reaching forth forth unto those things which are before. And so uh, in scripture, we're we're called to have a forward focus. And there are certain things that we've got to make a clean cut with the past and we're not going to be dragged down any longer uh, by those things. Now, notice what he says in verse number two. First, he says, we need to focus on what's ahead of us. Focus on what's ahead of us. Notice verse two. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men. He said, hey, don't spend the rest of your life just fulfilling your own fleshly lusts. Don't spend the rest of your life doing that, but rather, end of verse number two, but to the will of God. And so what is Peter saying? Hey, the rest of your life can be the best of your life. Hey, it doesn't matter what happened in the past, and it doesn't matter where you came from. Hey, as a follower of Jesus, the future is bright with Jesus. We can make a clean turn and say, hey, I'm focusing on the rest of my days and the rest of the time that God has given me not to fulfill my own uh, fleshly lust, but to fulfill the will of God. You say, I'm going to focus on the future that God has for me. I love what Oswald Chambers said. He said, leave the broken. Leave it. Leave the broken, irreversible past in God's hands and step out into the invincible future with him. We've got to have a forward focus. So he says, focus on what is ahead of you. But then he says, focus on who is around you. Uh, Focus on what is ahead of you. Hey, the future is bright with Jesus. We can focus on the will of God and pursue the will of God. And if you're serious about the will of God, you'll find out in the scripture what the will of God is. And so he says, focus on what is ahead of you, but then focus on who is around you. Notice verse 4. He says, wherein they think it's strange. You know, when you get serious about following Jesus, don't be surprised when the world thinks it's weird. <laughs> right? That's strange. You know, giving 10% and giving your Sunday morning to go to church and, you know, being passionate about the Bible. That's weird. That's strange. 
Peter says, don't be surprised when a world without Christ doesn't understand your calling in Christ. He says, hey, they're going to think it's strange. Wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot speaking evil of you. He's talking about life, you know, B.C., before Christ, before you were saved. Verse 3, he, he lists all of those sins and partying and living a worldly lifestyle, living, living according to the lust of your flesh. And he's saying, hey, uh, don't be surprised when you get saved and when you turn from that, that all those people that are still over there are thinking, why aren't you joining us anymore? Hey, why aren't you with us anymore? Don't you want to go drink and don't you want to come hang out with us and participate in what we used to do like the good old days? Peter says, hey, the rest of your time, since time is of the essence, cut ties with the past. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't pray for people. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, uh, love them and spend time with them. But it says, hey, we're not going to participate in what we used to because I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. Behold, all things are made new. The old man is put away. And so we have a new walk with Christ. So he says, cut ties with the past. Focus on what's ahead of you. Focus on who is around you. And he says, by the way, don't worry about what they're saying about you. Because they're going to give an account before God. You don't have to worry about making everything right. Sometimes when people talk bad about us, we think, man, i got to defend my honor, and i got to go and make things right and set everything right. He says, hey, let God do that. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the alive and the dead? God will judge them. There's one lawgiver. Guess what? It's not you and me. It's God alone. Let, Let God take care of it. So he says, focus on what's ahead and focus on who is around you. Notice verse 6. For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead. And he's talking about them that are now dead. The gospel was preached to them, then they passed away, they died. That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live. Everybody say live. Live according to God in the spirit. And there's the gospel message. Peter said, hey, we can have new life in Christ. And we can experience life even after death because of what Jesus did for us. There's the gospel in verse number six. We can be made alive according to the spirit of God. And so we have to arm our minds. Cut ties with the past. This leads us to our third thought, number three. Engage in spiritual discipline. If we're going to make the most of the time that God has given us, if we're going to recognize time is of the essence... We have to engage in spiritual discipline. Notice verse number seven. But the end of all things is at hand. Peter's like, all right, the end is here. Here's what to do. Now, if you've been paying attention at all in 2020, we probably should lean in and see what Peter has to say because it's pretty clear that the world doesn't know what to do if things are coming to an end, right? Like we've seen it like, you know, the world's coming to an end. Let's all go to Costco and get more toilet paper, right? Like, oh, the world's crashing around us. Let's fill up our gas tanks and get more gasoline. And, you know, people just kind of get fanatical. Peter says, Peter says that's, that's not the answer. In fact, he says it's quite the opposite for a Christian. Now's not the time to get fanatical and participate in the madness. Now's the time to engage in spiritual discipline, to be calm. Because our calmness speaks volumes that God's in control. So notice what he says in verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. The first discipline that we ought to engage in is the spiritual discipline of prayer. By the way, prayer is a discipline. Because if you've ever, had, if you've ever tried to have a real consistent prayer life, you know it takes work. It takes intentionality. There's a reason Paul said, hey, will you labor with me in prayer? He didn't say, hey, come relax with me in prayer. He said, labor with me because it takes work. It takes intentionality. And so uh, we have to engage in the spiritual discipline of prayer. See, when things go wrong in the world, what do we do? We panic. Peter says, instead, pray. The Bible says this in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 6. Be careful 
for nothing. Now, if you've read that verse or studied that verse in the past, you know that that word careful carries the connotation of anxiety. He says, you don't have to be anxious. In fact, he says, be anxious for nothing. Now, if you're like me, you read that verse and you think, that's impossible. Be anxious for nothing? How many of you are a natural worrier? Anybody like that? My wife, Katie, is a natural worrier. He says, worry for nothing. But in everything, so here's what we ought to do. We can't just say, okay, I'm not going to worry anymore. Because what's going to happen? We're going to worry. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Instead of consuming your thoughts, which is panic and fear and anxiety, he says, replace those thoughts with prayer. Boldly approach the throne of grace and, and cry out to him in a time of need. See, if there's ever a time when the church ought to be serious about prayer, it's now. We ought to prioritize the privilege that we have to carry our burdens and needs to the Lord in prayer. And he longs to hear from us. God is in heaven just wanting to hear from us. And we ought to approach him. So we have to develop the discipline of prayer. But also the discipline of forgiveness. And forgiveness is also a discipline that we need to learn to practice. Now, if you're still with me, would you say amen? amen. Verse 8. He says, above all things. Everybody say, all things. all things. So he says, above all things. So basically he's saying, hey, we've talked about a lot in this letter so far. But above everything, here's the one thing I want you to know. Above all things. Okay, here's the most important thing. Are you guys ready for it? He says, here, here's, here it is. Above all things, have fervent charity. Above everything, love. Uh, above all else, be passionate about love. Now, we've talked throughout this letter, and even last week we talked about what love looks like and what love will do, and, and uh, not gossiping, and, and uh, learning to show honor to other people. But he's going to say, okay, there's one thing when it comes to this area of love that we have to learn to do. Okay, so above all else, love, but then he even gets more specific about the kind of love that he's talking about. Okay, are you ready for it? Notice verse 8. Above all things, have fervent charity, love among yourselves, for charity, love, shall cover the multitude of sins. What is he talking about here? He's talking about forgiveness. See, when you truly love someone, and when you truly are operating with the love of Christ and you're seeking to love your neighbor as yourself, as the scriptures tells us to do, and we're seeking to model the love of Christ, we won't want to expose the harm that's been done to us. We'll want to cover that in forgiveness. See, we, can, we have two options when someone wrongs us. We can either expose it for vengeance or we can cover it in forgiveness. And a lot of times what we want to do, we want to air the dirty laundry. They hurt me, so I'm going to hurt them and I'm going to make sure everybody knows about it. But he says true love and having charity amongst, amongst the fellowship of believers should function in forgiveness. Now, he's not talking about covering up sin, okay? He, he's not talking about covering up sin. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 18, there's a time when you need to go public and you need to get some accountability and you need to talk about that sin. He's not talking about covering up sin, but he's talking about a heart that says, you know what? I don't want to expose the wrong that they've done to me because the Bible says, great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. So often we carry offense, and we carry bitterness, and it ends up destroying the container. It ends up destroying us and hurting us. Peter says, hey, we have to practice the discipline of forgiveness. Why? Because the end is near. Time is of the essence. We're going to spend eternity with each other anyways. We might as well start getting along now. We might as well start to learn to show forgiveness now. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirreth up strifes, but love covereth, forgives all sins. I was reading this week about uh, Elizabeth Barrett. She was a 19th century uh, poet 
and uh, a prolific writer who had a lot of influence. She influenced Edgar Allan Poe and Emily Dickinson, and people were inspired by her writings. And uh, Elizabeth Barrett eventually married another poet and writer, Robert Browning, and uh, they got married, and uh, they were happily married, but her father, Elizabeth's father, uh, did not want her to get married at all. In fact, uh, was extremely angry that she got married to Robert Browning. He refused to go to the wedding and he cut off all ties with her. He, he no longer spoke with her. He just kind of cut her out of his whole life and, uh, because he was so upset about this union of marriage that they had. But Elizabeth, obviously, his daughter was heartbroken about this, and so she wanted to uh, seek uh, to make amends with her father and seek forgiveness and, and seek restoration with her father. And so she would write him these letters for 10 years. She would write these letters with the most beautiful uh, uh, writing you could imagine and really uh, skilled in classical uh, literature. She was writing these beautiful letters um, in the skill that God had given her to write. And uh, she was writing all of these letters, but he never responded, never wrote back. And one day, uh, she, 10 years uh, into her marriage, about a year before her father passed away, one day she received in the mail a box from her father. And Elizabeth Barrett was so excited about this, and, and she went and opened the box, and inside the box was every letter that she had ever written unopened. And her father sent them back to her. Now they're famous. They're known as the unopened letters. And they're some of the most beautiful writings in English uh, classical literature. And I think it's so heartbreaking that he could have experienced these beautiful words that were written to him, because of bitterness, he missed out. So often we're holding on to bitterness and we're unwilling to forgive. We are intentionally blocking out the blessings that God wants to have for us. Peter says, above all else, show love. What does that look like? It covers a multitude of sins. It says, I'm willing to forgive and I'm willing to forgive again. And I'm willing to let that go. And I'm willing to release the debt. You say, how often should I forgive? Because someone's wronged me over and over and over again. How often do I forgive? Uh, well, Jesus answered that question to Peter in the New Testament. Uh, Peter said this in, in Matthew 18, verse 21. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Peter's like, how many times should we actually do this thing of forgiveness? Because, you know, people uh, have wronged me a lot. Till seven times, that was like a good, you know, guess that Peter had. Like seven times seems like an honorable number. Seven times of forgiveness. And Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to get Peter to do math. I don't know how good Peter was at math, but I don't think he was like, okay, okay, 490 times. That's how many times that I need to show forgiveness. And then once I get to 491, I'm in the clear. I can just kind of do whatever I want. That's not what Jesus was saying. He was saying that, hey, forgiveness is a lifestyle. It's continual. It's ongoing. George Herbert said this, he who cannot forgive breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. So Peter says, hey, if the end is near and time is of the essence, engage in the spiritual discipline of prayer and make sure that you are practicing forgiveness. These are the disciplines that Peter is serious about. Then he goes on in verse number nine and he says, use hospitality one to another without grudging. And uh, hospitality uh, means to welcome and to, and to, and to show love and, and, and to welcome people into your life. And if we're not careful, uh, we will spend our lives kind of just keeping people away, keeping people at a distance because we don't want to let people get close enough to hurt us. But Peter says, no, as followers of Jesus, the end is near. So let's be hospitable and invite people in. You know, one of the reasons why I, I listened to an interesting podcast several years ago that talked about how we're not as friendly with our neighbors as we used to be. And one of the main reasons for that is the invention of the garage door. Because before the garage door, you would pull up in your house and you would say howdy to the neighbors. But then the invention of the garage door, we go right in, we shut that door, and we don't want anyone to come bother us, right? Our house is our castle, and we pull the drawbridge up, and nobody's welcome in. Peter says, hey, don't live your life like that. 
some of the greatest discipleship that you will ever experience is at the dinner table. Invite people in. Show love. Be hospitable. Be forgiving. And this leads us to our last thought. Do you have one more in you today? Number four, deploy your gifts. Deploy your gifts. Now, I want to let let you in on a little secret. You all have spiritual gifts, okay? And uh, Peter's going to talk about how we need to deploy these gifts. Now, notice verse number 10. As every man hath received the gift, the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So we learn two things about spiritual gifts in this verse. First, uh, we all have spiritual gifts, every one of us. If you are saved, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life, and the Holy Spirit now indwells you, and the Holy Spirit enables you to have spiritual uh, gifts that you can use to serve the Lord. Okay, notice verse number 10, every man. Did you see it? As every man hath received the gift. So we all have spiritual gifts. Uh, Last week, we had our growth track class, uh, learning a little bit more about the church, and we talked about spiritual gifts. Romans 12 lays them out. If you're interested in what your spiritual gifts are, let us know. We'll let you take the test, and and you can answer some questions. But uh, really, Romans 12 says there's gifts of generosity, encouragement, prophecy, exhortation. And uh, these are things that God has equipped us with so that we can serve him and the local church. Okay, So, so every man hath received the gift. And then it says in verse number 10, It says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I love the word manifold. It carries the idea of a multicolored garment. And so he's saying that God's grace is not monotone or monochromatic. God's grace is multicolored. It's it's multifaceted. Uh, There is a diversity when it comes to the gifts that God has given us. Not all gifts are the same. You tracking with me today? So we're all uniquely equipped to serve God. Okay. Then he goes on and he's going to make this even more simple. He's going to divide the gifts the spiritual gifts into two categories, speaking and serving, okay? Speaking and serving in verse number 11. Notice what it says. If any man speak, everybody say speak. Speak. Let him speak as the oracles of God. And so he's talking about speaking the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? He's talking about the scripture. He's talking about the word of God. And so he's saying, hey, there's a spiritual gift to communicate God's truth. And you might think, well, that gift is just reserved for a pastor. Or that gift is just reserved for a teacher. But really, anyone that communicates God's truth uh, is is empowered to do this, whether you are a kid's teacher, a youth worker, a disciple, a small group leader. Hey, all of us really should be proclaiming the words of truth. And so he's saying, hey, speak the words of truth in your life. And then he goes on to verse number 11. He says, if any man minister, okay, the word minister carries the idea of serving. So we're going to serve Jesus, and we're going to serve him uh, additionally through the local church. Uh, If any man minister, let him do it as the ability which God giveth. And so I I love this phrase so much because sometimes, if we're being honest, when it comes to serving the Lord, we get tired. Sometimes when it comes to doing right and serving others and loving people and doing what we know is right and serving, it's just exhausting. There's been times, even over the last several weeks and several months in this season that we're in as a church with, with everything going on in the world, but there's great news in verse number 11, because even when we're exhausted, notice what it says, even if we're tired, he says, if any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth. Good news, everybody. We don't have to do it in our own strength. He said, hey, you're tired, you're weary, you're exhausted. Here's the good news. God will give you the ability to serve when you otherwise would be unable to do so. 
He said, God will give you the strength that you need. Hey, you feel like, man, I can't stand firm. I feel like I'm just going to fall over. I'm tired. I've been trying to go down this path, but it just seems like things aren't working out for me. I don't know if I can move on any longer. I don't know if I can stand firm. I don't know if I have it in me. And Peter says, God can put it in you. He can give you his spirit. He can give you his power. He can give you the ability to stand firm in this day. And this is good news because when we feel exhausted and tired and I don't know, Peter says, hey, God will give you the ability. The ability. God will give you the strength. That's what Ephesians says in Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. See, we can be strong, not in our might, but in the power of his might. He'll give us the ability to serve. And so what we need to do today as a church is to deploy our gifts to go out and to serve our city and community and to serve the local church and say, hey, I want to use what God has given me. Hey, I want to organize for the glory of God. I want to encourage for the glory of God. I want to give for the glory of God. I want to do my part in serving because God has equipped me to do so. Charles Spurgeon said this, serve God by doing common actions in a heavenly spirit. And then if your daily calling only leaves you cracks and crevices of time, fill them up with holy service. A couple of weeks ago, on a Sunday night, I got into a truck with my brother, my father-in-law, and my brother-in-law. And uh, we were going to go kind of on a last-minute trip to Colorado for a couple of days. We were going to drive out there. And we got in the truck, and we started uh, going down the freeway. We were driving for a couple of hours. We passed Kingman, Arizona on the 40, uh, Kingman, Arizona on the 40 freeway. And it started to get a little bit colder outside started to rain a little bit, started to um, even snow just a little bit. And before we knew it, we hit a patch of ice and the truck that we were in started to spin out of control. It eventually started to roll several times out into the desert. And we all thought, this is it. This is it. We started to roll out in the desert several hundred feet. We came to a stop by the grace of God. Everybody in the truck was okay. A little beat up, but no one had any serious injuries and God preserved us and protected us and we were so grateful for that. But as I stood in the middle of nowhere, in a ditch, freezing cold weather, it was snowing down, I was reminded time is of the essence. Life is short. We don't know what tomorrow holds. James says, what is your life? It is a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanisheth away. I believe that God is reminding us and calling us this morning to have a renewed sense of the fleeting nature of our time and to recognize that life is short. So let's deploy our gifts and serve God. Let's make sure that we're uh, engaging in spiritual discipline, that we're cutting ties with the past, that we're arming our mind, that we're ready to stand firm in the day of adversity. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.